The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And as I mentioned in the guided sit, there's a lot of learning when we just get interested in desire. What is this force of desire? And I, I think it's a useful way to think of desire as the anim- animating force of life. Because we have a way, including in Buddhism, of pathologizing desire. The problem isn't desire because there's really no life without desire. The problem is the misunderstanding of desire. Right? Or seeing desire with a self-view, taking it personally. Taking the natural, unavoidable force of desire as if there's a me. And the basic wrong understanding is we think, because I'm me, I have desire. But one teacher turned it around, and I think this is a really helpful way to understand our mind. It's because desire, like I said, it is this animating force of life. It's, it's you know, like we say in Western science, you know, it's the force behind evolution, desire. And uh, so... You know, one way, I think a really useful way to think of it, you know, there's this impersonal force of desire that animates life. And at some point, there was this, that impersonal force, just like different species, plants, animals, there's a mutation in, and then all of a sudden, you know, the the members of that species that have that mutation, they're just so much better able to survive and thrive, that after a short period of time, they take over. There's no members of that species that don't have that mutation, because there's half or whatever the population that is so much better selected to survive. So when you think of it in this way, you can imagine this innovation and the evolutionary process of desiring and desiring and desiring and all of a sudden there's desiring with this added piece of part of that mind of that creature takes the desiring personally and it's like desiring on steroids because now there's a sense of a somebody a fixed somebody that's doing the desiring you see how it amplifies the force of desiring because all very simple creatures desire you know you we all did this probably in third grade. You know, we grow green beans and you notice how the plant goes to the sun. You know, and, oh, and, you know the way we language that, oh, the plant desires the sunlight, gravitates towards the sunlight. Well, that's desire. But if somehow the green bean thought like <clears throat> that there's a me that wants that sunshine, or a me that doesn't want to die. You know, we don't sense that in a creature or a plant like a green bean, but we don't really know, right? But but we do know ourselves, or we can at least. And we really feel that way. Like, if I don't put a sweater on, this chill is going to kill me. If I don't scratch that itch, I'm going to go bonkers. You know, if this sit doesn't end soon... I'm just going to bolt. 
I was reading something by a, a Western Buddhist monk. He he was talking about desire, and he was gave an example of being a, stuck in a traffic jam and having bad diarrhea, <laughs> and just the intense desire, you know, and how everything else leaves the mind, you know, this has to happen, and not having any control. And that's like where we really see the identification with desire really causes a lot of pain. Desire's not the problem. And that's what I mentioned in the guide that said tonight, maybe some of you caught this, but you know, it's it's almost like the mind is more identified with or attached to the doing of the desiring, the wanting and the not wanting. Right? So desire doesn't just mean to want something, we desire to get rid of something. So craving Tanha is the Pali word. Craving means both wanting and not wanting. That's, you know, about sense experience. That's one type of craving. Craving to become somebody and craving to be done with it. Those are the three types of craving we can observe this next week. And... A nice, simple definition that we get from Ajahn Sumedho for craving is it's desire with attachment. Or we could say desiring with misunderstanding. Where we, you know, in misunderstanding, misperceiving is nicely defined by the Buddha as these four ways we distort. So when we misperceive desire, that means we see something that's permanent, we see it as permanent when actually the desiring comes and goes. This is what's so amazing when you practice with desire, is you see that it ends without having to gratify it. And that is so stunning. Because it looks like when we have a lot of desire, the way we tend to perceive it is this desire is permanent until I get what I want. It's like an edifice. You will not be okay until you get what you want. This longing, this ache of longing is a fixture. That's how it seems when we have craving. So it seems permanent. It seems personal. It seems like it will be that the satisfaction will be real when we get what we want or get rid of what we don't want and that it's somehow the thing we desire is somehow intrinsically good or beautiful or right. But all of that is constructed, right? Because things aren't actually permanent. Desire ends because there's always going to be the next desire, right? <laughs> it's like would be an incredible traffic jam of desiring if it never ended. But it's like we're on to the next and to the next. It's really like an addiction. But the key point that I want to make here is that the addiction is more to the, 
to the activity of desiring, like what we take personally is more the activity of desiring than getting what we think we want or getting rid of what we don't want. And that's often what we talk about when we're hanging out with our friends or loved ones. We talk together about what we want and what we don't want. Oh, I can't wait until this, you know, week is over. Can't wait until I get, I'm getting a new cell phone tomorrow. Can't wait. I got the protective case today, it's so nice. I I don't know, some amazing marketing ploy, they figured out that people like us, myself at least, are spellbound by nice packaging. I don't know if people have bought Apple products before, but today I received, tomorrow I'm going to get the new SE phone, and because uh, mine doesn't have much battery life anymore. But, uh, but I got the case from Apple, you know, which was, you know, of course, way overpriced, I, I'm guessing. It seems, it seems that way to me for what it is. And, uh, but the packaging was so nice. You know, it almost feels worth it. You know, just that, like, that's that study and gratification. Like, I must be special because somebody designed this packaging so nice and it came to me. And we always miss how ephemeral, how the promise isn't kept, that it's going to really matter. Because we hop onto the next desire. Yeah, tomorrow I'll get the cell phone. You know, and there will be a little bit of pleasure, just the elegance of a machine that works pretty well, you know, can do things, and the battery will last longer than an hour, and (laughs) things like that. I still love the phone. As long as you're recording, you know, you just get through tonight. <laughs> but it's just interesting how we just jump to the next thing we want or don't want, because that's the addictive piece. We feel real and alive when we're desiring, when we're attached to wanting and not wanting. And it's very interesting, and I, I just encourage all of us to, to make a study this week. And this is one of the reasons we said that to make a study of boredom and just to sort of find different times during the day where you can hang out and really embrace a non-doing, a non-reacting, a non-getting, a non-fixing, a non-becoming. It's like a little, it is actually in some ways like a psychological death. Or just, and the reason that that's so potent, just like in our formal sitting practice where we hold still mostly, it's such an affront to be awake. I mean, it's easy when we're, you know, reading a book or watching a movie or sleeping, but it's such an affront to, on some, like, be vulnerable to the interpretation I'm not doing anything. I'm not becoming anybody, I'm not getting anywhere. Oh my God, I'm wasting my life. I mean, it's amazing, we're totally fine looking at 
catalogs <laughs> or endlessly scrolling online or but to sit there in a relaxed and alert way and observe the mind which is so relevant to our experience as a human being and we can have this profound scary sense of boredom and uh, like we're missing our life so for uh, the conversation tonight in the small groups I'll just give you some themes before I continue talking Um, but just to you know last uh, week I talked about the Buddhist teachings where he said you know when people were curious about like what did you do to become a wise human being? And he, he, one of the things he said is, in terms of studying the experience of gratification of sense experience, I've done it to the extent as much as any human can do. Maybe people match my clear analysis, discernment of the experience of gratification, but I've done it to the nth degree. You can't study it more than I've studied it. I've studied the drawbacks of sensuality to the nth degree. And I've studied the escape. Like how to be a human being with a body and mind here and now, but not pushed around by those eight worldly winds of gain and loss and pain and pleasure and success and failure and praise and blame. Just the duality of our sense world. How to be free of being pushed around in sensuality. Because the escape we imagine is that third kind of craving. Get me out of here. You know, when we do, because inevitably, regularly, we get burned by sensuality. We feel betrayed or whatever. And uh, sometimes we just hop on to the next, you know, thing we want, and that gets us through, okay, but when I get home popcorn, or what, you know, tomorrow I get breakfast. <laughs> I mean, how many, this is something just to observe, like, during our sit tonight, but all week long, every carrot you dangle in front of your mind, a little promise, you behave, Mark, and you get... You get to go to sleep tonight. Or you, you know, if you're good, you're going to be able to retire someday. And then you won't have to do anything. <laughs> Which is probably the most scary thing, right? It, it always looks good. I mean, it's like, that's the thing about desire. We're just ignorant about the things we're promising ourselves. You'd think we'd learn. I drove uh, to bakery to get uh, chocolate, I have to be honest, more than one chocolate chip cookie today. And, uh, you know, but it's, it was just that, and, I, and the thought did occur to me that we're talking about sensuality and craving tonight. <laughs> so, I thought, well, this would be good field work. <laughs> but it's like, all the way, like whenever there was a more balanced presence for moments, you know, in that whole ordeal, um, there was there was very, you know, it was pretty clear that 
it wouldn't really matter. I mean, it, it wasn't like the mind really thought it would matter. But, but the force of habit, like the animating force of being able to go do something, it's like that's what we know. And we really, I find in myself, there's that, um, I think it's Ajahn Tanisaro says, we haven't really stared that monster in the face of the mind not being formed around craving. And because it has, initially it has a flavor of death because it's so unfamiliar. Not because you actually die when we drop the identification with desiring. But it's very unfamiliar. And this is sort of, because a lot of what the Buddha taught was familiar stuff at the time, you know, about generosity and moral integrity around non-harming and and even concentration and just collecting, unifying the mind in the present moment. But the unique piece that the Buddha added was really looking at the joy, like staring that monster in the face, whether you call it in a moment boredom or like that sense of lack, like when the mind isn't identified with wanting or not wanting, there can initially be this not-so-pleasant sense of emptiness, like, I don't know who I am, I don't know what life is about when I'm not wanting or not wanting. And we have to learn how to be with that yucky feeling, really relax with it. Because we might discover, as the Buddha did, and so many of us have at least tasted to some degree, that there's this whole, let's call it, other realm or dimension of pleasure. There's the pleasure of getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. That's a real pleasure. It's just somewhat or very ephemeral. But there's this whole other dimension of pleasure, which is basically the pleasure of not being caught up in this realm of sensuality, of thinking that this endless pursuit of what we want and don't want leads somewhere. It's such a relief for the mind to get out of that vortex. And the first place we discover it is when the mind just gets a little concentrated and we're just with the breath or we're just absorbed in some work, we're doing needlepoint or whatever it might be, it doesn't really matter. So in the flow of being with the breath, being with the knitting, being with the washing of the dishes, being with whatever. That there's an escape from the normal torments of the craving mind. And if there's an invitation, like we get some teaching, encouragement, to notice that pleasure of seclusion, the mind secluded to some degree from the craving, from the identification with desire. Because like where this happens, there, there will be probably desire, like when you're doing mindfulness of breathing, there's a desire to track the breathing in 
and the breathing out. And there should be a desire to notice the pleasantness of that, the, the pleasantness of that seclusion. I mean, there's all kinds of desires, even for meditation, but if we're doing our practice skillfully, we don't bother to identify with the desire because it's an unneeded stress <clears throat> and it's counterproductive. It is an onward leading. And we learn this, all of us, we learn this the hard way, don't we? <laughs> we do get attached to wanting the meditation to progress, the concentration to deepen, to get more calm, more joy, more ease, more stillness. But, you know, we learn over and over again that doesn't develop the meditation, that develops agitation and judgment and doubt and frustration. So eventually, some of us, it takes a long time, others catch on sooner, but if we stick with it, we all learn that concentration deepens when we follow the instructions without identification or attachment. <clears throat> we just do what we're told. I mean, I don't know if this is, if this will make sense, but in when I, I practiced in Burma for a while, and this is told by many people who practice in the monasteries in Burma, the most impressive meditators are these young women, like uh, older teenagers. And uh, one of the reasons, it's a pretty patriarchal culture, and, uh, so you, and the monks in Burma, <clears throat> probably still to this, today, but certainly when I was there before, they're sort of the top of the heap in terms of power and prestige, you know, more than a businessman or a political leader. It's like if you're a Sayadaw a teacher and head of a monastery, it's like you're the highest status person in the, in the culture. And so when that person tells you to do something and you're a relatively low status person like a woman in this culture, you just do what you're told. And they get success in their practice because they follow the instructions and the practice unfolds. And this is the thing, it's like we just stay with the present moment in that way. We'll start to, and we're, if we get invited, if we're reminded to notice how good that is, notice the goodness, the rightness of the mind that is vividly present, so present that it's not bothering to get identified with desire. Because what's being emphasized is the presence, oh, this is being known. And this begins to open our mind to a whole other realm of pleasure. And this is important, the second half of the course, you know, we'll talk about contentment and dispassion, which is just the maturing of that pleasure. Initially, it can be even quite rapturous, lots of joy, lightness, brightness, energy, feeling really enlivened and calm at the same time. But it's really important to, as I mentioned in the guided sit, to be somewhat attuned 
to that pleasure so that we can be that uh, non-attached observer observing desire because we're in a good place, we feel good. So it's like we don't have to go looking for desire, we can cultivate the pleasure of seclusion of the continuity of present moment awareness. Desire will keep showing its cards because that force of nature is totally, you know, it's just part of the mind stream. It's not going anywhere. It's always going to be active. But then we'll be able to, because of that contentedness of being relatively settled and whole and unified, we can see desire in a new way. And that's really the insight. I mean, one way to think about the insight. The cessation of craving isn't the cessation of desire. It's the cessation of misunderstanding desire. And when we understand desire for what it is, it's not a problem. But that's easier said than done. And the interesting thing, and I'm sure that this is familiar to some of you, there will be moments when desire is a problem, and then, a, and then in the next moment it's not a problem, like there's some real space of wisdom. And the mind feels like uh, in safe territory, like, oh, I don't need to worry about this desiring, because I get it. But then in the next moment, I mean like literally the next moment, we find ourselves acting out that desire or that aversion in a way that's unskillful even though there was some true clarity in the previous moment. Because that clarity and the liberation from doing stupid stuff is moment by moment by moment. And uh, we can lose it, just like we can get that clarity. I do this a lot with my own addictive tendencies, you know, it's just like, oh yeah, I'm not going to do that. I see it, I feel it, I know where it leads. It's not helpful. I'm okay with the tug, you know. It's not even so much a tug. And then I kind of, you know, so I do that discernment, this presence, mindful presence, it's balance, wisdom's good. And then I lose the thread of the present moment and whatever that desire and the tendency to identify with the desire kind of finds another little way back into the mind. The mind gets attached. And before mindfulness kicks back in, we're already down the road acting out that desire or that aversion. And that's why there's such an emphasis on the continuity of present moment awareness. And it isn't personal, it feels personal, it feels like there's a war going on between you know, the forces of attachment and craving and wisdom. But this you know, the tendency to misunderstand desire is just the, it just has momentum. It's not an evil force, but it is not to be taken lightly because we'll do all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, think about how many lives have been destroyed by sexual attraction or by uh, using drugs or overeating or... Uh, 
you know, whatever people do because they've gotten addicted. And it's really interesting, like, to, uh, oh, this doesn't matter. But the thing is, it, it doesn't, that one time doesn't matter. But one time leads to the next time. You know how it is. So the best place to really understand that desire is just what it is, and it isn't more than what it is, is before it gains a lot of momentum, and that groove is well greased. So in your, your groups tonight, you know, you can discuss your own relationship with desire and you could choose a particular place where you've seen in moments the emptiness of that particular desire that shows up for you. And then in how in other moments it feels so much real and there really is a me that needs to do this. I'm helpless in the face of this. I can't help myself. I know I'm going to do this. I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to do this anyway. I'm going to call this person. <laughs> you know, or we just can't leave it alone. And that's just so interesting to see because it, it's very real, but it can be understood as being very impersonal. But so many things are impersonal but we really have to pay attention. Like if you do backpacking or any kind of wilderness adventure stuff, you know, the forces of nature are totally impersonal. They're not all to get you, but you, you have to totally respect the forces of nature. Even though they're not evil, they're not all to get you. And it's exactly the same in terms of our own mental conditioning around desire. Another thing to talk about is this place that I mentioned around fear of boredom and how, how we often, like when, uh, almost like an antidepressant, will look for something to want to give life purpose. Oh, I could do this. I'll get interested in that. And then it, when it, things run their course, and we kind of are starting to creep back into the territory of boredom, my life losing meaning, because the thing I really wanted, I've either gotten enough of it, and it didn't really satisfy in any meaningful way, because I'm now vulnerable again. And, and we can even, this wise presence can even catch that sort of like, this is Mark desperately looking for the next thing to animate give meaning to my life. And in the Buddhist realms of existence, they have this realm of the hungry ghosts. Right? It's a sort of, I'm guessing, but who knows, metaphorical um, system that just describes different aspects of our mind. And that they're depicted as having huge bellies, huge appetites, but their mouth is the size of a pinhole. So they can never satisfy their appetite. And it's just it's a pretty graphic depiction of, of that needing something. And a lot of us 
when, when we first come into the Buddhist teachings and practices, it is for us that, that next thing. You know, oh, I'll do this. I'll desire this. I'll become this. This will save me. And hopefully, it will. But not because we become Buddhists, but because through the practice, this is the thing, if we just do what we're told, it will radically change the mind's relationship to sensuality. And before we break into small groups, I'll just mention, because it's so relevant, and at least I'm not sure if it's literally true, but in the early Buddhist tradition, it's considered the first talk that the Buddha gave, this uh, setting the wheel of Dhamma, setting the wheel of these wise teachings, these liberating teachings in motion. And uh, the first part of that, he's, the story is at least that the Buddha um, found some of the friends that he had earlier practiced with, but they had abandoned him because he had given up on the ascetic practices because he realized that denying the body its comforts <laughs> doesn't lead to liberation. And uh, they thought he was getting weak, so they left. Soon after that, Buddha got healthier, came into a more balanced place, and had his deep awakening under the Bodhi tree. And then a few months later, he tracked down these five friends, Dharma friends, practitioners, and they were pretty, you know, pretty good meditators already. And the first thing he said to them is, as, as we already knew, you know, this is a real rough paraphrase, that happiness, true release, true freedom, doesn't come through indulging in sense experience. And then, of course, nodded because they were heavy-duty ascetics, you know, into ascetic practices. A lot of self-denial, fasting, and things like that. And then he goes, but... You know, ignoring the needs of the body, the way he said it is. That which is devoted to central pleasures and central objects is ignoble, unprofitable, but also that which is devoted to self-affliction, painful, Unprofitable. That's also not the way. Avoiding both of these extremes, the middle way realized by me, the Tathagata, that's how the Buddha referred to himself after his awakening, the one thus gone, that's what that means, Tathagata. Producing vision, producing knowledge leads to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. So by not rejecting sensuality, which is its own, that's the craving non-existence. That's its own kind of reaction, self-centered reaction to sensuality. It's more of the same. Thinking that sensuality is going to save us is one approach. Thinking that sensuality is out to get me, I'm just going to give up on it, that's another wrong approach. And wanting to become somebody in a better sensual situation is the same thing. These are the three expressions. So it's abandoning craving. And that's something you can reflect on in the small group, but also especially this coming week. Who am I without craving? 
or what am I, or what is this when craving ceases? Because, you know, we, we have some intuition about this already, because craving isn't constant. Some moments during the day it's like really big and intense, and other moments it's quite diminished, right? So we can, we can learn a lot just in just getting a sense of how's craving now? Where's the craving? How's craving operating in the mind, in the body, heart now? What's it feel like? Is it true that craving ceases without gratification? Let me just notice. Like, you know, after the small groups, you go home, and maybe you promised yourself, you dangled the carrot. And it would be nice just when you get home, you sit down, you go, okay, there's that reverberation of me promising myself. You get to watch your favorite show, or whatever you did. You know, you get to put your best pajamas on and crawl into bed. But just to sort of, in a playful way, just like not indulge in the gratification. And just notice what you learn. This is really what we want to do with this four-week course, is just get to know the mind and sensuality, craving, the possibility of the pleasure of contentment and dispassion, to really see that not as a resignation, and we'll talk more about that next weeks, the next two weeks, the real freedom and satisfying pleasure of letting go of attachment. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.